My name is Alyssa Robinson, and you're listening to the Treach Podcast. On today's episode, Reverend Doug Meyer and his wife, Reverend Wendy Curran Meyer, have a great conversation with me about loneliness through the lens of divorce and how we can do a better job as a church to help all people feel loved and included just as they are. Doug and Wendy participated in a virtual roundtable on isolation and loneliness, and you can watch that at tmumc.org wellness. I had the privilege of watching you on this virtual roundtable that you participated in talking about isolation and loneliness, and you hit a little bit, uh, both of you, your experience of divorce, and that really spoke to me because I'm also a person who has gone through divorce, and I feel like it's something that the church doesn't talk about enough uh, because there's we're just like a reflection of the population. I would venture to guess 50 to 60% of marriages in the church have ended in divorce. Can we talk a little bit about that through the lens of isolation and loneliness and what are the phases of the types of isolation and loneliness that you felt through that experience? I would say at first, um, if I'm honest, it was relief. I was relieved and I've been divorced twice. So uh, both times I felt relief to not be in a an environment where uh, I was uncomfortable or I was not happy and I was miserable. So it was a first was relief. But the second part was really hard because with um, the separation and my living alone or my living, um, um, yeah, living alone, I lost my identity. I wasn't sure who I was again. And I think that experienced this most uh, predominantly when I was divorced the first time. Uh, we had been together for about six years, and and I lost friends. I had people that didn't, I don't know if they didn't care, or if they didn't want to associate with me anymore because I was no longer part of a couple, and they were still part of a couple. And, and um, it was very isolating. It was hard because we had a lot of couple friends that we did things with, and even the second marriage of mine, we had a lot of couple friends. And so the isolation came from no longer having those friend groups or having companionship or people to uh, identify with anymore. Um, because I was divorced or I was getting a divorce, they didn't, they didn't connect with me anymore. And that was really, really hard um, to the point where I wasn't sure where to go find community. Um, I, uh, it, it was really, really hard. I can kind of second that in a way or echo it, you know, so I, my situation, I don't know, it wasn't, it was, a, everybody's situation is different. So I had been married 32 years and, um, we had begun to live into our broken marriage more outwardly the last two or three years. We separated twice. Um, we had a circle of very good friends at my previous church. Uh, one of the interesting things, and Alyssa, you might have experienced this, is couple friends freak out. They don't know what to do with you anymore. And uh, 
I used to kind of joke to make it not hurt so bad that, well, I guess she got the friends in, in the, you know, in the divorce. Um, but I think in some cases she didn't get them either because people just disappeared literally overnight. Um, family, you know, my ex's family disappeared. A lot of friends disappeared. And um, it suddenly becomes like you're a little bit of a castaway. People just don't know what to do with you. And so therein begins some of the loneliness. You're trying to find who who's your tribe because... You know, I had identified in couple tribe for over 30 years. And um, I just, I didn't, the word like single, that didn't have any uh, appeal to me at all. Or going to singles things, that didn't appeal to me at all. Um, so probably in, a, in part, I began to self-isolate. Just, you know, if there's nobody to hang out with, you know. I guess I hang out with myself. So that's when I started uh, painting and stuff like that and go hanging out with, you know, my granddaughters because, you know, they still love me. They, they, were, they were like sometimes like medicine for my sad because they were like, yay, Papa's here, you know. Um, but it, um, it's a weird world. And, and yeah, I'll just leave it at that. I don't. Well, and I think that, for my situation, that the isolation that I felt, I think a lot of it was self-imposed and it, it came from embarrassment because my story was very different from yours in that our marriage was short. Um, I We were in a relationship for eight years, but we were only married for two and a half out of the eight. And I felt like a failure. And I was like, I went into this marriage so confident and that we were going to be together forever. And then he disappeared. He walked out on me and it was like the rug was ripped out from under me. And so I was dealing, like I am that oblivious person in this relationship that I never thought I would be that I didn't know that anything was wrong. And, and so that isolation and loneliness that I felt was, number one, I didn't want to talk to anyone about it at first. I eventually got over that because I was embarrassed by the fact that I couldn't make a marriage work for even three years. Uh, the second isolation that I felt is I'm the first person in my family that, in my immediate family, that has experienced divorce. Uh, my parents have a marriage that's going on 40 years. My grandparents were married for over 65 years. My sister and brother-in-law have been married, I think, for 12 years at this point. Um, and so I'm, you know, the first one to go through this. And, you know, some of my aunts have been divorced, but I uh, wasn't as close to them in the sense of getting to interact with them all the time. They don't live nearby, so they weren't someone that I felt like I could turn to. And so I was just sitting here thinking like, nobody's going through what I'm going through at this moment in time. And I didn't even know how to express what I was feeling. And so it was like loneliness coming in waves. And also the fact that, you know, this was a short marriage and I'm young. I don't have kids and there was nothing. Sometimes I still have those moments of panic of like, honestly, I've never known if I wanted to have kids. And most of the time I'm like, eh, I don't think kids are for me. But every now and then I have that panic of like, did I miss my chance 
to, and will I be alone forever because I won't have children or grandchildren to take care of me? <laughs> and it's just like, it's so much. And it comes in these different feelings. And some of them were so overwhelming while I was going through it. And every now and then those waves of loneliness still show up of like, did I miss out on having someone to spend my life with? Yeah, I get that. And, and, and I get the, I get the part about like, uh, I share that like marital history. Nobody in, in multiple ripples out in our family has ever been divorced. And so nobody kind of had a toolbox to go to, you know? And, um, so part of that, I didn't know who I, I lost kind of for a while my identity because I was, you know, Doug, the married guy. And uh, if I were honest, I guess I would say that kind of like Wendy for a while at the very beginning, because the, we had been broken for so long, there was a bit of, of relief. It just felt um, like, oh, good, I'm not going to go home to this silent person or a fight or a disagreement. But um, nobody knows, like I'm thinking about the church. Church people are, uh, I want to give them a little bit of credit. They just don't even know what to say or do. And so unfortunately, they don't say or do anything. You know, I remember going to a Sunday school class party when I got to Treach, and it was all couples. And I might have hung out for all of 10 minutes, and I just bailed. I was like, I can't, I'm not going to do this. What was I even thinking? So I wonder, I don't know, Wendy, what do you think? How could the church be more what it says it is to people who are going through divorce? I think they have to acknowledge the individual person and to, I mean, over and over and over again, tell them and help them to feel that they are a beloved child of God and that no matter what, God doesn't stop loving you and that you are loved. And um, learn to speak a language of that, of unconditional love at all times. Um, I think a lot of churches have, have tried by having divorce recovery and, um, you know, opening, making sure that divorced people understand that they are still important in the life of the church um, to a degree, but I don't know that they do a good job at all of helping to, um, make that divorced person feel included and a part of the life of the church still. And, um, more so than anything else that they are loved beyond a shadow of a doubt by God at all times. And I still feel like the church has a long way to go toward making everyone feel inclusive but divorced people um, are definitely in that category where I don't think we are very inclusive. You know, it, um, just as you said that, I wondered, and I don't have an answer, but I'm going to wonder this anyway. Like the phrase divorce recovery, to me, almost implies that there's something about you that you have to get up. You know, like it, it, there, there needs to be a better word for it. There needs to be a better word for uh, 
healing and moving on. There is some grief, but there's not always grief. Sometimes there's anger and abuse and crap. And right? sometimes there's relief, you know? Absolutely. And And so, yeah, it just, it needs a different word. You are right, that it doesn't need to be recovery. It almost feels like when you use the word recovery, you're saying to divorce people, hey, can you go get fixed so you can come back and be one of us? Right. And we'll set you up with someone too. <laughs> we'll help yeah. you find a singles group to go to. Well, it, it implies, and some couples use, I mean, some people use this word like, like recover your wholeness. I didn't lose my wholeness. I'm still whole. There's just, I think it maybe needs to be an extension of a grief class or something or an anger, you know? Or a class called falling in love with yourself. <laughs> something like that. Or just... Knowing you're loved and just focusing on, you know, four weeks or something about that, you know, God loves you and you have to maybe take some steps to forgive yourself for the, you know, the choices or mistakes or whatever you might need. But that underlying that at all times is the overwhelming message of unconditional love and grace. Right. Well, and I don't, I wasn't intending for this to be a divorce episode, but I couldn't help but feel connected. And I'm sure that there are plenty of other people listening who have either experienced divorce, are in the throes of a divorce, are worried that their marriage is heading into divorce. And I think uh, so often I bring up, and Doug, you can attest to this in our worship meetings, we should talk about divor divorce more. And I'm usually hit with like blank expression of, are you kidding me? Like, why would we talk about divorce when we should be talking about saving marriage or saving relationships or working on your marriage? And I'm like, well, that ship has sailed for me. So <laughs> how can how can I feel a part of things? You know, I, I think probably one of the healthiest things a church could do is uh, frequently have their divorce pastor talk about uh, marriage. <laughs> right. I think that's um, a great idea. And, and the other part of all that is um, whether you are single or married or, or whatever your coupling up situation is, you still have individual unique qualities that you don't lose when you become married or when you become divorced, you know? And maybe that's what the church should really spend more energy on instead of you know how to be a how to be this or how to be that how to just be uniquely you well and that was my saving moment saving grace i guess you could say when i was finally willing to let go of this relationship that you know now looking back on it it was not everything that i thought it was i was definitely seeing it through rose colored glasses and learning to love myself as an individual, um, it really made me feel whole and connected to other people in a way. And it helped me cope with the loneliness and isolation by learning to, it, it's so strange that the anecdote for uh, loneliness is spending time alone. But that's what it was for me is learning to love myself by myself without having to be affirmed or connected to another human being. Yeah. And I, I think that's just this 
a stupid unspoken culture thing that people are uh, not assumed whole until they're coupled. And um, I don't think we affirm singleness enough. You know, I think um, I think that that old it goes way back, right? I guess to coupling up to procreate and this and that, and somehow then that became, you know, it's probably biblical. I don't know it, the esteemed way to do life. Well, why can't we esteem the 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 joys of being single? Well, and and to switch gears a little bit, um, Doug, I know that in the virtual rounds table and Wendy, you as well, you seemed to kind of settle on, you know, shame is at the center of isolation and loneliness. And, and that was true for me out of my divorce experience, that embarrassment, not wanting to talk about it separated me from people. But um, I know Doug, you talk about shame a lot. I know both of you are big fans of Brene Brown. When and how did shame develop for you? And, and when did you start to overcome that? So my shame goes all the way back to childhood and was in part a part of my uh, abuse experience as a little boy, was part of my uh, pornography addiction that started when I was very young. And so I had rules in my mind about what good people did and what bad people did. And, uh, you know, being addicted to pornography was a bad people thing. And all the acting out of, you know, living into that made me create this image in my mind of less than. And I think that image of less than is like fertilizer to shame. It... Um, you know, you just try to figure out, I was trying to figure out where I fit in with things. Now, add to that, you know, I was not athletic. I was living in a chubby boy body. I, um, you know, kind of felt, you know, pretty much uh, nerdy. And um, just the only rationale I could come up with was that, you know, um, there was something, I, I'm not going to say wrong with me, but that it was just kind of some kind of holy punishment or whatever. You know, I used to think that a lot uh, as a consequence of the pornography addiction, that it was some kind of payback from God for that. And uh, that just stuck with me. It stuck with me, uh, you know, all the way, man, up until just... I guess I started into recovery eight or nine years ago and began to realize the statement that we've already said here once today is, um, no matter what I'm doing, that doesn't separate me from God's love. That I am still to God a precious, priceless child. And I, I used to think I was exempt from that, but that was a nice thing to say, but not to people who were addicted to pornography. And um, I began to realize that that was broken thinking, that that, um, that that was just a farce, and that I was uniquely and wonderfully made and lovable and could love and, um, you know, continue to work on, I think it's, it took me a long time to build my shame fort. <laughs> so I think, I think I could still go there, but I'm, I'm pretty, pretty well along the way of dismantling it. 
And Alyssa, I think I talk about it a lot because I'm so adamant that uh, I, uh, I know that it exists in a whole lot of other people for a whole lot of other behaviors. And uh, that breaks my heart. You know, nobody needs to live, you know, in the, in the, in the traps of that. Well, and, and I've had conversations with you about, you know, um, I have experienced temporary embarrassment, but I have never experienced long-lasting shame. And that's something that I'm very grateful for, but then I also seek to understand those who have experienced and carry this shame because that strikes you at the core of your identity and who you are. And it's, I, I just wish I could take that away from anyone who's experiencing it. Well, absolutely, uh, because there's all these unspoken but acted out on uh, rules in our world. And, and we're beginning to see some of them dismantled, right? But I felt some shame for a while about, so on one hand, I'm a pastor and I make up that I'm supposed to be a role model, but I'm, you know, a porn addict and I'm getting divorced. So that qualifies me, you know, over here in the less than column. You know, we have friends who are shamed for being uh, a heavy size. We have friends who are shamed for being uh, gay. We have friends who, are, you know, there's just a long list of, of it's almost like it's some kind of, uh, I don't know, the word that comes to mind is punishment, but that there are a whole lot of people out there who use shaming as a way to tell you, hey, you need to shape up, or you're not enough, or what you're doing is wrong, or you don't measure up. So, you know, we're going to shame you in an effort to correct your behavior or make you better. Wendy, what's what's your relationship to shame? Um, definitely the things that Doug has mentioned. Um, we're going to shame you um, in, as, as punishment and um for me, the deepest sense of shame I ever felt was at the time my second marriage was breaking up and I left the church uh, as a pastor under um, not very good circumstances. And um, all because I had a big problem with lying. I lied to myself. I lied to other people. I... Um, was not as um, transparent as I as I should have been, and um, it all blew up, and uh, and so for a very good while, a long while, I didn't I didn't have a I didn't have a direction. I didn't know where I was going to be going with my life, and um, I I felt guilty, and I felt uh, I felt so many things, but definitely shame was one of them, and embarrassment. And, um, I had to rebuild my life and, um, I was very grateful that Doug was a part of my life at that point and helped me a great deal with that. And in going through the recovery process, mine was different or mine was what I consider to be different from others who don't have an addiction to, um, alcohol or drugs or anything like that. Mine was, and it was more of an addiction to lying and not telling the full truth. And so I had to relearn how to be honest at all times. And I had to learn and value a life that was free of, um, untruths 
and um, I have really, I mean, it's been so freeing ever since, but um, shame can cause you to just retreat into yourself and into things you don't want to be part of and um, cause you to lose your identity, like I think we've said that already, and to um, feel less than and that you don't belong and you and it shakes your world as to where do you belong and what are you about really and um you know uh it still haunts me now and then it haunts me that i'm not in church and that i'm not a full-time pastor anymore uh, i love my job and i love my life now as a teacher don't get me wrong it is a great and fulfilling and wonderful life but you know the calling to the church and um, getting to take part in sacraments and the everyday life of the church and people and their spirituality and being um, close to them in that regard I miss that and uh, um, I, I, I could let shame creep in and rear its ugly head now and then and I have to remember that God loves me and that God is, you know, I am God's child and that I have experienced firsthand redemption and firsthand forgiveness and firsthand restoration. And uh, I am a new creature um, thanks to, you know, the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And so I, um, I, don't let shame come in as often as it really could have. It could. I guess it could. But um, it's, a t it's a struggle. Well, and, and pastors have to face so much. Uh, and I, I think that a lot of, not all pastors, because I know some that are very transparent and vulnerable, you two being a couple of them, um, but it, it seems like, a lot of pastors have to put on a mask and have to pretend that they're perfect and that they don't make mistakes, even though they're preaching from the altar every Sunday that we are imperfect. We as a people make mistakes, but somehow they can't own that I am not perfect. I do not make mistakes. How did you get to that point that you're willing to announce to the world, I am not perfect, and how can other pastors get there? I find that people are just, they need more so than a perfect pastor, they need an imperfect pastor. They need a pastor who will um, empathize and uh, and really get real and authentic and transparent with them and say, you know, I have experienced shame. I have experienced humiliation and all these things that go along. I have lost a job. I have done these things and it hurts and it's awful and it makes you feel bad. And I think people need a spiritual guide to, to, to go with them and to be with them and walk with them and journey with them that they can and, and be a guiding light to show God's amazing redemption and restoration in your life. Um, that's a much more compelling story. And um, th that's what Christianity to me is all about. Rather than trying to be perfect, it reminds me of Pharisees. Pharisees always tried to look good. 
even go to as far as putting dirt on their face to show that they were fasting and they were hungry and all these things. And um, we need to show authentic selves and be willing to share our uncomfort, our discomfort and our shame and pain that we have been through so that others can see and know that there is the light at the end of the tunnel, that it is Jesus, it is it is redemption and restoration and wholeness available to them because we have experienced it. I would echo almost all of that. Um, I think that there's a bit of a guard change going on. I think pastors um, 25 years older than us kind of made their way up in a culture that said, don't show them your real self. I think there are beginning to be, I mean, there's always going to be holdovers because that is kind of a, a safe hiding place. But I think there are more who are beginning to realize the value of uh, authenticity and realness. Um, it is exhausting to put up a false front, a mask, whatever we want to call it, over and over again. And it really, I think it creates a schism between you and everybody else because then they really, they start believing your BS and they think you're the Superman or Superwoman, when in reality, it's just, a, you're a fraud. You know, that's what, what compelled me was when I came to, to treat, everything kept falling together for me to be my most real self. And then just, I remember one day talking to John Allen and saying, I'm, I'm jumping in the deep end. I can't not be this. And if the church um, can't live with that, then we'll part ways. And uh, I got a lot of affirmation for, uh, for just being authentic. And so that, that fueled my continued authenticity. And um, I can't imagine now not being authentic and not, you know, um, not just saying it as you feel it. And... Uh, I mean, for one thing, it's exhausting. Just to try to kind of live up to this, you know, false self. Um, and beyond that, it's when you don't do it anymore. I think, Wendy, you might have alluded to this. It's so freeing. You know, you just don't have that, the maintenance that you have to do on, on your old self. Well, and it, it seems to me that even if you want to embrace authenticity and vulnerability, the profession of pastoring is a recipe for isolation and loneliness. Just observing from a distance, seeing the burdens that y'all have to carry from people sharing uh, pieces of themselves with you that are so difficult, but also you're wanting to set an example for your congregation and shepherd your congregation and feeling like there are things that you're not allowed to share no matter how open you are. How do you deal with that as a pastor and not uh, just crumble under the isolation that can happen being in this profession? You find places to be your most authentic self, whether it's with friendships outside your local church, uh, some friends in your local church who you have risked being this super transparent with, and they welcome and, and affirm and love you anyway kind of deal? It's hard for me to answer that question since I'm not 
um, a, a pastor appointed to a church. Um, but I can answer that from um, the standpoint of, you know, my, I'd say often that my congregation now is my classroom. Um, they are also, it is also the teachers that I am blessed to be um, working with here at my school. And that they know my history, they know my past, and so they know that, um, that I'm asked to pray with them, or I'm asked to, um, you know, you know, they, they come and they seek my advice for spiritual or pastoral type counseling at school. I'm going to perform a marriage ceremony for one of my co-teachers in, um, in December. And so, I mean, I'm kind of seen somewhat in that role. And what I get to do when I'm asked questions about faith or I'm asked questions about God is I get to bring this new self, this new pastor who doesn't have the shame burden anymore, and this new pastor who knows all about truly redemption and restoration. And so I, um, I, can, I bring that to our discussions and into our, the prayers that I say. And, I'm, and, um, and I know and I wake up every morning and know that I have a clear conscience and I have, I have lived my life in a good way. And when I make a mistake, I try and fix it immediately. And, um, and so I like the person that I am now. And so, uh, and I believe that God likes, God is happier with me. I think God always loved me, but God is, I think, in happier with me now. I don't feel like a fraud. I don't feel like uh, I'm putting on some sort of a facade that I want people just to see a specific side of me and not the whole, my whole self. Well, and I make up that part of the reason that you struggled with lying and, and hiding who you really were or what you were dealing with or what you were going through at that time is that, you know, a piece of it is historically the church has not been a safe space for us to be vulnerable. Correct. And, or Yes. Correct. And how can we fix that? Like, what can we do as people of the church to start making church a safe place because that's what I want for the future of the church is when you think of, you know, Doug, when you mentioned you have to find those safe spaces where you can be your authentic self, I'm like, dang, why can't the church be that? What can we do? Well, start all over again. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think that... Um, I don't know. I say that in jest, but I, I think that it is hard to undo centuries of uh, what I'll just call like church as performance. People get, you know, remember back in the old days, people would get dressed up for church. They would kind of put on their Sunday best. And, you know, I think that that was part of honoring God. At least that's how it was sold. But I also think that it was kind of the, the uh, look pretty on the outside so people won't know what's going on on the inside. Um, I think it has to be modeled all from the very top down. Yeah. And I, I think that uh, people take their cues from uh, whether it's a single pastor at church or a multi pastor at church. Um, you know, for instance, even though we probably differ from them dramatically, 
there's a church in Dallas called Watermark that, gosh, half of their staff have been at one time in their life in recovery, and it is upheld as a uh, just another thing that people work on, and that people are there to stand alongside you and to journey through. Um, and so they really, you know, kind of be, I would call it like shame extinguishers. They don't allow that to be a thing. Likewise, they encourage um, their members to, you know, look at themselves and see where those, those trouble spots are and where, what is stopping you from having the type of relationship with God that you want to. So they are encouraging it. And, oh, my gosh, if we did that in the United Methodist Church, how awesome would that be? Yeah, and I really think that you hit a big word that I don't want to gloss over in one of your sentences is trust. Um, and I think that that's a big piece of a safe space is being willing to trust each other with ourselves and our full selves. But also that means that we have to be trustworthy um, and that I need to be able, because I can't honestly say I can walk into a room at the church and share my full self and not be afraid that that person will use it against me or gossip about it later to their friends or that it's going to spread through the church. Like I, and so I don't have that trust built up and I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I don't know that that's, that that would be something that any of us would feel comfortable doing right off the bat with people we didn't know. So right. that's something that would, that would help, that would work, I guess, over time as relationship got built and trust got established. So, you know, even in a, in a great environment where it's very inclusive, I think that takes some time. That, that trust building and that comfort level, you know, gets, takes time. I don't know if I have ever been a part of a church or seen a church talk about isolation and loneliness in the way that we have been over the past couple of days of uh, the, the best way to connect is to, let's say, name your shame, be vulnerable, open yourself up, let's build some trust with each other. Um, and, and I want to, I have my own answer, but I want to hear your perspective of why has the church avoided having conversations like this? Oh, well, because it's one of those, it's messy and everybody has it. And it, it, it means that you've got to own some of your own stuff in, in leadership circles. And uh, it's not, it just goes back to the whole inauthentic and the, it's easier to not than it is to do it. And then you have to revamp your, you know, your church curriculum, discipleship, and what discipleship really looks like. You have to redefine that. And so there's a lot of systems already firmly in place in church already that full authenticity and inclusivity and, um, you know, being full disclosure doesn't, it doesn't mesh with that. It it now it's it meshes with you know burying stuff and maybe talking about sensitive things now and then and and um, you know but you know real deep down stuff um, it's not our it's not in our wheelhouse right now so you'd have to change a lot of the way we do things in systems in Sunday school and 
discipleship and talking to youth and whatever so that that message carries through everything we do. We've got a culture shift and change the, the culture of the church. Well, and I think I think people are just afraid of it, Alyssa. I think, um, and so you know, we kind of create this other narrative that, you know, know your Bible and just love your neighbor and do all this other, which is a pretty easy sell. Most people go, oh yeah, I want to do that, versus oh, sit down and reveal the darkest hurts in your life and trust each other with it, and uh, people I don't think can visualize how exciting and rewarding it is to be fully open and known. See, and I was kind of leaning towards that as well of like, we want this happy, happy, joy, joy, like always excitement, always hope, always. We are in the, I hear this all the time in the church. We are in the business of hope. Well, okay, but the underlying message to me that we're getting from the church is that if you love God the right way, if you are in relationship with God, you shouldn't feel lonely. So if you're feeling lonely, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you're right in a way. There's a whole lot of the way the Bible's interpreted of, uh, you know, you do all this just right and, and you can skip down the la down the street every day well and that's the whole prosperity gospel thing too i mean it's all you know you love god and everything's going to be fine everything's going to go your way and it's just not life is messy and ugly and unpredictable and you know and when there is no hope even though you've got a church who is in the business of hope and there is no hope for you at this point in time in your life you know what happens where does, where does that come from? Where do you get that? So I guess the message I would want people to walk away with from this episode is it's okay to sit in the ugliness. And if you are feeling like your life is messy and falling apart and you're lonely and you're isolated, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing something wrong or that you're not connected with God. Uh, the right way. It just means that you're human and you are in a season of darkness. And we all experience that at, at one point or another. And to just reach out to somebody and be honest about what you're feeling and what you're going through. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and I think all of that, I think you kind of alluded to this a minute ago, but like all of this can coexist at the same time. You can be a person who has a really confident sense of who you are and that you're a beloved child of God, and you can still be depressed and sad. You can be, you know, in a marriage that's sinking. You can have kids who are addicted. I mean, all of that reality is we all live in that every day, right? And um, I don't know. We, we, uh, I don't know why we're so hard on each other that everything has to be just right and just so. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I would hope people would take away that um, there um, things can get better. That yeah. that that you have inside you, uh, if you can, uh, I don't know, think speak or listen. I don't even know that you have to be able to speak. 
um, hear that you are a beloved child of God. Allow someone else to hold you really closely. <laughs> and if they need to, you know, hug you and hold you every day, uh, and you begin to wake up to your in, just innate, beautiful self, that um, you will begin then taking the next steps of uh, moving towards uh, acknowledgement, and then maybe that acknowledgement will begin to move you towards some kind of restoration, which even in restoration, that still means they're going to have crappy, no good days. But, right. But in the middle of it, you're going to know I am huggable and lovable, and I'm I matter. Thanks for listening to today's podcast episode. For even more resources on mental health, you can visit tmumc.org/wellness.